Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back. And now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey, everyone. So last Friday was Valentine's Day, and I honestly didn't do very much about it because I think it's a super ridiculous Hallmark-created holiday. And also, I'm a super sappy romantic, and the holiday usually leaves me feeling really fucking miserable. This is a prime example of how two things can be true at once. I can intellectually understand that this holiday is garbage while also feeling super sorry for myself and bemoaning the fact that yet another Valentine's Day has gone by without me having an actual fucking Valentine. This is a lesson that I try to teach all the time in my work, right? This whole two seemingly opposing things can coexist kind of thing. So over and over again, women in my Facebook group will say, "Ah, I was the one who wanted my marriage to end, but now that he's moving out, why am I so sad? And my answer is always, two things can coexist. And they usually do. Two truths can be opposing and equally true at the same time. You can be relieved and grief-stricken at the same time. You can be happy and sad at the same time. This is part of the complexity of human emotions. And the saddest thing to me is hearing women asking over and over again, what's wrong with me? Or is this normal? Nothing is wrong with you for experiencing a wide range of often conflicting emotions. And yes, it's fucking normal. (sighs) So no one knows this better than my friend, Leslie Morgan Steiner, who is my guest this week. Leslie's memoir, Crazy Love, which is her account of her violently abusive first marriage, is all about this kind of complexity, how we can at once deeply love and also deeply fear one person. It's a chilling account of domestic violence, but it also gives the reader a really clear understanding of why women stay, and it's an account of a trauma bond like none other that I've read. Leslie's most recent memoir, The Naked Truth, explores these dualities as well as she writes about female sexuality, self-esteem, and dating after 50. So please welcome New York Times bestselling author, columnist for the Washington Post, speaker on work-family balance, successful corporate executive, and domestic violence survivor, Leslie Morgan Steiner. Leslie Morgan Steiner, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to talk to you. We're just full disclosure, we're on video here and we're very excited about that too. <laughs> I am very excited, Kate. I've been looking forward to this for so long. Oh man. So I think it's great. You know, the, the person who introduced us totally randomly, right, was um, a family, old family friend of both of ours. And I'm just so glad that we got that connection. I mean, it's just, it's, it's kind of crazy, right? <laughs> it's, it's really amazing. And it just sort of goes to show, I feel, the, the power and the magic of the sisterhood. Because wow. the person who introduced us is a woman who has meant a lot to me, who has been a mentor and a muse in some ways. She's the wow. mother of a very good friend of mine from elementary school, mm-hmm. who got divorced when I had known her for just a few years. And... Uh, left Washington and moved to New York and reinvented herself. And, you know, women like that, who we're watching all the time as young girls, really influence us. And I think it's an important thing to remember that there are always some other women and possibly much younger women modeling themselves after us and that we're always an inspiration to other women. That's amazing. I love that. That's so beautiful. And it's so true because, you know, and the funny thing is, is that when this woman that you're talking about moved to New York, she moved into my building that I grew up in and became just a very close to my mother. She's very close with my mom. And, you know, so I sort of picked up the baton there. It's just so funny how it works. And then here we are. And, and then, are. and you know what, who knows what's going to happen next in the next generation of women. Absolutely. It's one of the reasons it's such a fascinating time 
in American history to be a woman. It's frustrating, it's challenging, but it's also exhilarating because things are changing so quickly and women are becoming so empowered despite all of the obstacles that, that we, at, at, at women at any age and women coming up as young girls now are going to face. Yep. Um, but it's a very interesting time. It really is. It really is. Amen to that. So, a, a woman to that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we want to talk about your book. You have a memoir that you wrote called The Naked Truth. And it is about, your, what's the, what's the, the, the subtitle is, is so great because it's. The subtitle is A Divorced Mom, Five New Lovers, One Audacious Adventure. Yeah, and that it is. <laughs> I tell you, it was an adventure to live it. It was an adventure to write it. And it's amazing to be able to talk about it now with other women and men yeah. um, to be so candid about my inner life, my sex life, um, what it's like to be an older woman. Mm. And I love this because, you know, I, I had a similar, similar adventure when I first got divorced because I too had not, and this is, and this is really, I think the crux of this conversation. I hadn't had sex in years and I had been sort of systematically desexualized in my marriage. Um, I was told I wasn't a sexual being in my marriage. Um, and when I got out of my marriage, I decided to, I think more unconsciously prove that that was not the case. <laughs> that, or I started to discover that that was not the case. I was like, oh shit. Oh wow. And I was like in my sexual prime, like it was, it was the good times were had. Right. And I come across so many women in my practice and in my groups who are in the same place, but have so much guilt and shame around their sexuality. And your memoir just kind of unleashes all of that for all of us, I think. Well, you know, the exact same thing happened to me in my marriage. And I think it happens to a lot of women and some men too, in unhappy marriages that we lose touch with ourselves. And part of that is losing touch with your sexuality. Mm -hmm. And one of the most remarkable things to me is that I did exactly what men in America do when they get divorced at 50. I bought a sports car. I started dressing, you know, in like a very trendy way. Mm -hmm. And, and I started dating younger mm -hmm. and I had, you know, five lovers in one year. And if a man does that, we're just sort of cheering him on and saying, Oh, of course you got out of a sexless marriage. You're finding yourself go for it. But a woman yeah. does it. And it becomes a best-selling book, you know, like it's such new. <laughs> right. And, that there's something wrong. Yeah. And you know, my subject is women. All I do is write about women and, and travel around the world speaking about the experience of being a woman. And what I found out is that 60% of women in, no wait, the, the number is that half of women in their 50s have not had sex in a year. And if you go older, it, the number goes up. So 50% of women our age haven't had sex in a year. Like that's crazy. That's awful. And I think that part of it is that we're, we're told we're not sexual beings. We're told by our husbands and our partners and by our culture. And I remember when I was in high school, a friend saying to me, you know, I heard that women hit their sexual peak in their fifties. Can that be possible? And of course I thought that was a joke because I thought there was no sexual being more sexual than me as a teenager, but I found out that it was true. Yeah. I thought when I got divorced that I never wanted to have sex again. But what I learned is that I never wanted to have sex with my ex-husband again. Yeah. And I really wanted to have sex again with myself, with the, the wonderful men who came across my path, the men who made me feel beautiful and sexual and amazing the way that marriage never had. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a condemnation of marriage in America, not of women in America. And so that's what I say to everybody who you and I come across, who they're too ashamed to have sex again or to be a sexual being. I, I say, don't, you know, don't listen to those voices from our culture. You've still got it. And you have every right to it, to feel beautiful and sexual at any age. Yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, let's talk, so let's talk about the cultural aspect of this because it really is right. There's so much shame. Um, 
around women's sexuality still. Right. And it's, and it, whether it may not, it may not feel overt and it may, it, it's a little more subversive. It's a little more quiet. It's a little unconscious. It's sort of, I think it's like woven into the fabric in a way that we can't quite see or feel, but we know it's there. Right. You know, it's just, it's everywhere. And it's in the places that you would least expect it because I think you hear it a lot from the sisterhood Bibles, you know, from magazines and online um, advice and the makeup counter, you know, there, there are these ideas that an older woman has to cut her hair a certain way. She can't wear short skirts. She can't, she's got to redo her makeup, you know, all this idea that you've got to like, transform yourself as you get older to be invisible. And it's just so crazy. And I'm glad that I have a streak in me that's very rebellious that said, that sort of said to the hell with all that. Yeah. And, you know, if you think back to when you first started feeling ashamed of your body, I mean, it was back in the day when our bodies were perfect, you know, when we were 16. Oh my God. (laughs) Oh my God. Right. If only, if only. Right. I know, I know. And so how there's no, there's no shot for us feeling good about ourselves as we age. But I actually turned that on its head. I found that that was a really beautiful thing Mm. because my body is so very not perfect because I'm older and because I've, I've had kids and I, you know, had normal pregnancies that went full term and then I breastfed the kids. So like nothing looks quite what it's supposed to look like. And I found that it actually does. It looks exactly like it's Thank you very much. It looks exactly what it's supposed to be. But because it's not, quote unquote, perfect, I walk into, you know, my bed or a man's bed knowing that I don't look perfect. And the thing that I found that was so lovely is that the men who that I was with and I'm with now, they don't expect it to be perfect because they know I'm older. And there was a freedom to that. And I I often say, you know, my skin is a lot more wrinkled now, but I'm so much more comfortable in it. And that in and of itself is very sexy, both to me and to the men who are attracted to me. And I love that part of being an older woman. And I wish that I could go back in time and give it to myself as a younger woman or give it to my daughters and to my son, you know, to, to know that you, perfection has nothing to do with sexuality. Mm. And, and, and what is perfect and, and, and right. And, and I find as a, as a woman of, you know, similar age that, you know, I got a text from a a lover, (laughs) a former lover, um, last night who was like, you know, sort of extolling my, my, now I am heavier than I've ever been in my life. Actually, that's not true. I'm, I'm losing a little bit slowly and naturally, but you know, I have been, I, I'm at a larger size than I really have ever been. I've had to go through a quite a reckoning with myself of healing from eating disorders and, you know, sobriety and like, you know, really just everything changes and, and I'm 48 and things are changing right rapidly. And this man <laughs> texted me last night sort of talking about like my beautiful body and its softness and the curves and the like all this. And I was like, I, I have no desire to have sex with him anymore, even though it's the best sex I've ever had. It was, it was actually really nice to hear that. It's so nice to hear that. And, you know, we shouldn't even have to kind of apologize or explain how nice it is to hear that. You know, when I walk down right. the street and I notice a man looking at me, as long as in an appropriate way, I, I love it. It makes me feel more feminine and empowered. And I just think that's part of human nature. And one of my, one of the funny things about the, that I write about in The Naked Truth is that all of my lovers that first year were younger. And some of them were much, much, much younger, which surprised me. I didn't know. I had my married mom blinders on, so I didn't know that younger men liked older women. I seriously oh didn't know that. God, that they that fetishize us. Fet- right. You're so funny because in your book, you don't even, you talk about it. You didn't even know what a MILF was. I didn't. They called you a MILF and you were like, what's that? <laughs> right. I thought they were saying milk. I was like, oh, Leslie, oh, Leslie, right. you've, been, you've been sheltered for too long. <laughs> I, I had to, I think, in order to try to be happy in my marriage, I had to turn that 100%. part of me myself off. But you know, one of those younger lovers, he used to stroke the cellulite on my stomach, like my, the part of my stomach that I, of my body that I hate the most. And he would just say, oh, I love this part of you so much. And it was hilarious and wonderful. Um, and it showed me, it was one of the many things that showed me that I was looking at myself with terrible 
you know, distorted glasses. I was looking at myself the way our culture looks at an older woman. Mm -hmm. And that if I could look at myself the way those men looked at me, Mm -hmm. that that it was so empowering and wonderful. And even, you know, I've had my share of eating disorders. Um, I overcame anorexia as a teenager. And and I, you know, sometimes I still struggle with it a, a little bit. And so when I'm struggling, I remember to look at myself the way my lovers did. It was one of the great gifts that they left me with, that they saw me as beautiful and sexy and soft and curvy and that I smelled good. And, you know, the thing they love the most is that I love sex. Yeah. And that you can get at any size and at any age. And um, it's a priceless thing. It's a gift that you give yourself and your, your lovers is to really enjoy your body and what you're doing with it. So, all right. Let's talk about this because I think that that's like sort of easier said than done when you live in a culture that sort of demonizes women's sexuality or doesn't doesn't really honor like requires it and yet also squashes it right like we're supposed to be these sexual beings but like it's all supposed to be natural or we're not supposed to try too hard or right right? like actually for a woman to I think for a woman to enjoy sex isn't is a radical act. And it's, and it goes against so much of what is expected or required of us. So, so how do you, how do you get there? How do you get to a point where you like just fucking love sex without all of the other shit in the way? Well, first of all, you're so right. It's why, you know, that in some countries it's still legal to mutilate a woman's genitals and to make her hide underneath a, you know, a basically a black covering to hide her body because we are not supposed to enjoy sex. So it is radical and subversive. I feel like I'm very lucky and that I have always enjoyed sex. Mm. Um, I just naturally like it. I'm comfortable in my body and I like sex a lot. But what I would say the practical advice that I have now that I really think about it is that I've been really careful about partners that I've had. I'm very selective. And I only want to be with people who are crazy about me. Oh, um, it's the yeah. number one thing on my list is that, that a partner has to be really into me physically. And believe it or not, a lot of women, that's not the number one thing on their list. Right. They have other things on their list. And I don't know exactly what they are, but I would say to anybody out there listening, if you haven't been enjoying sex, make sure that your next partner is somebody who is crazy about you physically and, and likes sex and is uninhibited about it. If it's because not that a goes fuck, a long yes. way to healing you. And you know, men can be destroyers, unfortunately, but they can also be healers. Sometimes the same man, but look for men who are the healers who really like women who, and who really like you. Yeah. And there are a lot of them out there. Yeah, there really are. There's a, there's a great article by Mark Manson called, if it's not a fuck, yes, it's a no. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. How pithy. Yeah, it's just so great, right? And I think that that's that's exactly it, right? Like if this if you're not with someone who is like worshiping at the altar of your body, don't be having sex with them because they're because I that is what's damaging, and I think that's what does a lot of damage to us, right? Oh, so awful. My marriage. I was married to a man who never liked my body, and that was at my skinniest and my best. Right. And I, ultimately I wasn't his type. I just wasn't his type, but that became my problem. Right. He <laughs> he still wanted me to change into his type in some way. Um, and, and it was so, I mean, besides the fact it was utterly abusive, um, but it was so damaging. It, well, that in and of itself is abuse and it's, it it's is, a absolutely. vicious thing to do to somebody. You know, I don't, I don't know why he was married to you. And I had the same situation and I don't know, there were very complicated reasons why somebody who wasn't attracted to me wanted to be married to me. Right. And I'm, you know, I'm so naive in some ways. I, I, I loved sex so much that I just couldn't. And also my partners had always loved sex too. So it took me a, a very long time to figure out that my ex wasn't there with me in bed. He really wasn't. Yeah. And that I couldn't live without it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of a radical statement too, that you could leave a man who was in many other ways, a very good idyllic partner, not for me, but according to our society yeah. standards. Right. Um, and say, no, 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 I need that. I need to feel cherished as a woman. It's part of marriage. It's part of love. Yeah. Um, is a very important thing. And I wish it hadn't taken me 50 years to get there, but at least I got there eventually. 
Yeah. So that, I think that's a, that's one of the most practical things to say, look for people who are really into you. It sounds so basic, but we're not raised as women to think about that, to think of our own worth being really important. Exactly. And that is a subversive act to, to be, you know, taking our own temperature while we're picking partners to be taking our own temperature and to keeping right. Cause so much of us is conditioned to get them to like us. Right. I know. I know. Right. To convince them. And it's just, why do it? There's so many people out there who like us just as we are. Yeah. And we don't need that many people, you know, um, yeah. arguably you just need one or in my case five. Um, but I don't know. There's just so much about this that I think is really important for women to talk about. And on the Naked Truth book tour, which I hope lasts forever, I have encountered so many older women who said to me, oh, I did the exact same thing. I got divorced at 49 or 50 or 60 or whatever. And I went out and I had, you know, five lovers for a year or three or six or whatever the number was. And what I always say to them is, why didn't you tell me? You know, tell other women. Let's talk openly about this. So younger women or women who are trapped in a loveless, sexless marriage know that they can get out too. And it's okay that this, that other women have done this. We haven't been stoned to death or shamed and we've survived, at least in our country we have. So it seems like such a radical thing, but in some ways, if you do it in a way that is loving and protective of yourself, um, it can be a very empowering thing. And I think you get a lot of approbation from our society, not condemnation. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I really do. And I think it's, I mean, I think it's great. It's so gorgeous that women are sort of coming to the surface with this, right? It's one of those, like, you know, the secret sisterhood. Exactly. <laughs> you know? like, I, I say it traces directly to the Me Too movement. All of this is of a piece of women saying, this is who we are, and we have every right to just be comfortable and, are, and safe and loved in our own skin, wherever we go. Yes. Right? We have the right to say no. And yes. we also have the right to say yes. Exactly. Yes, yes. please. Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I wanted to sort of talk about this. A lot of my, a lot of women uh, that I work with or in my group and stuff like that are talk about dating after divorce and like, but, but, uh, but I, I'm not allowed to date because it's still adultery. If, if we're still married, if the divorce hasn't been finalized, um, I want to go out and explore this, but I, but I don't want to, you know, I'm scared, right? Like there's a, there's an urge. There's like, they want to get out there. They want to date. And my guess is they really actually want to have sex. You know, right. <laughs> and a lot of them are saying they want to date, but I think that they, a lot of them want to have sex. Um, and there's a, and there's a stigma around it that they're not supposed to. And I, you know, I, <laughs> we, we sort of had an exchange about this. Like, I'm like, go, go do it. Explore. Right. And, um, but what's the shame? What is it? You know, is it adultery if you're not divorced, but you're separated? Well, right. I have to say, I love being part of your Facebook group so much. It's so, um, enlightening and sort of nourishing and validating mm. to have these conversations with, with so many diverse and candid women. Yeah. Um, and what I think, I mean, there are a couple of ways to come at this. First of all, I would say that whatever you're feeling is okay and legitimate and you should sort of honor that and dig into that a little bit because there's no right answer. And I think for some women, dating if you're not legally divorced, maybe you would consider it adultery. You know, if you're very religious, um, that's your call. It's not my call. It's, it's yeah. your call. In my particular case, I felt like my line was that as soon as my um, husband moved out of our house, I was free. Mm -hmm. And um, he was too. So right. I, that was my line in the sand. And I think that we get really caught up with all the ways that we're shamed by outside labels and controls. And one of them is our marital status. And sometimes one of them is the marital status of people who were dating. I have, I know women who will not date a man if Nussie's legally divorced and like they've right. seen the paperwork. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand that either. Like I, I matters to me much more what's on in a man's heart and how much he is free in that way. Yeah. So there are things, that, there's no shortage of obstacles and things that you can find in our society without looking hard that are going to make you feel really badly about yourself and ashamed. And I think you should try really hard not to pay attention to those. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with not telling anybody. 
You know, I was afraid at first, like so many women are. So I didn't even tell my closest girlfriends that I was doing this. Um, It was between me and myself, what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's okay. And it, it, I think it's very important to find support um, and test the waters slowly in terms of not what you do, but who you tell about it. Yes. Um, Because I don't want anybody to shame me. Nobody has the right to shame me, but I don't know. I was like a little baby at first. I was so vulnerable. I didn't want to go out there and say, come on world, go ahead and shame me. Thank God I didn't because it would have. Right. My kids would have, my, maybe my friends would have, maybe men would have. So I was pretty careful about it at the beginning. Yeah. That's great. And I love that, you know, and for me, right, as a, as a, as a woman who's been divorced for 10 years and who's looking for a life partner, um, I don't like to date men who are only separated um, and not divorced because I, just because it's a time thing. Like I think, I think we need, I think in, you know, I'm looking for a life partner. That's what I want. So, you know, you're not ready to, you're someone who's not divorced is not ready. Right. I totally agree with you. You know, there's just a holdup, like whatever. Okay. But it usually it's a timeline issue and a healing issue. Um, you know, so again, like you said, it's completely, it's personal, you know, you get to make the choice, but what I also want to impress upon women is that it's your choice, not a cultural choice, not a society's choice, not a, not the choice of, you know, dogma or whatever. It's your choice. And if your choice is rooted in your religion and your values and stuff like that, then absolutely. But make sure it's your choice. I agree completely. And also that there are many choices. And one of the things that happens to us in our society is that we're indoctrinated from a very early age that there is one right way to be as a woman. And you've got to throw that off and say, well, you know what? Maybe eventually I'll get to the point where I want a life partner and I want to get married again. Mm -hmm. Um, But maybe right now I don't. Right. And that was something that I had a lot of clarity about because I was terrified. I was terrified of commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, because I had, I had had two awful marriages that felt like I was in jail by the end of them. And yeah. so I didn't even want a guy to spend the night. You know, I didn't want to go out with him on Valentine's day. I didn't want to be anybody's girlfriend. I wanted to have five boyfriends with no strings attached and that they made me feel great about myself. So that was great to have that clarity. And now I have clarity that I'm kind of, that, that, that got, I worked through that. And now yeah. I, like you want a life partner. And so I look for very different things now too. Yes. And that's all okay. It is all okay. We're going to take a really quick break and we're going to hear from a sponsor. Um, And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about, since you brought it up, your first marriage. Great. Okay. We're back. So, (laughs) um, all right. So you mentioned uh, your first marriage, which is another one of your memoirs called Crazy Love, which was so good and horrifying and validating and... um, all of the things to read. And this is a, this is a story of, of domestic abuse. How did that, I mean, I, I feel like I want to talk about that a little bit. And then I want to sort of talk about how this also informs, right? It informs our choices. You know, we, I think we come from similar fabric where we tend to choose, you know, we, we have a history of choosing men who abuse us, you and I, sister, and to become, and, and I think this is something that people really want to hear about, women who have made these choices in the past who really don't believe that they'll ever make different choices in the future. I know. And that's, that is a very good point. Well, let me just start by saying that everybody is vulnerable to being abused. Um, no matter your religion, your education level, your age, your income, how, you know, what neighborhood you live in or what school you went to. Yep. Um, abuse is really common in our society and in every society, emotional abuse and physical abuse. Mm-hmm. And the people who are most vulnerable to it are people who either grew up with it, so we think it's normal, or people who have never experienced it. So we're arrogant and we think it's never going to happen to us. And I fell into the latter category. Mm. Um, I you grew up in a wonderful family that did not have any abuse. We had alcoholism, but we didn't have any physical or emotional abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, I was close to my father and my brother, and I loved men and boys, and I never thought that a man would ever hurt me. And I thought that women who stayed with abusive men did so because they had low self-esteem or they were really poor or they were stupid. Um, <laughs> I mean, really, and, right? Let's get down to it, right? Please. I know. It was terrible. I was so, I was just like so many people. I was really biased. I blamed victims. And then I became one. 
And I was 22. I had just graduated from Harvard. I was working at Seventeen Magazine in New York, dating up a storm, having a great time on top of the world. And I met a wonderful, charming, handsome, brilliant man on the New York City subway. And he had just graduated from another Ivy League school. And he worked at a Wall Street investment bank. All of his credentials were great. He had a very expensive blue cashmere coat and straight teeth. And he was cute as hell. And I thought he was terrific. And he brought his resume to your first date, right? He brought his resume to my first date, which was so funny. And then he laughed. He laughed so hard at me for, he was just, he was a, he really was a delightful person, very charming in the way that people always say abusers are, but they, it's not a fake charming. It's a real charming. Oh, it's a hundred percent real. Don't it's come with a warning label and they don't hit you on the first date. Yep. Uh, so, you know, he actually, he didn't even raise his voice to me until we had been together for many, many months. Um, and until I really trusted him and loved him and he had been terribly abused as a little kid. Um, it was a really sad story, horribly, really tortured by his stepfather. And I thought he had left it behind and he hadn't. Mm-hmm. And he started abusing me right before we got married. Five days before our wedding, he strangled me. And my, denial is such a powerful force that I was able to tell myself that he hadn't really hit me mm-hmm. um, and that he loved me so much he would never do it again. And so I put on my mom's wedding dress. I stood up in the church. I married him and then he beat me twice more on our honeymoon. And then he got guns and it got, it just got, my life turned into a complete nightmare. Um, And I was trying to help him. I was convinced I was the only woman on earth who could help him. And so I didn't tell anybody about it because I knew that would get him in trouble. It wasn't that I liked what was happening. It wasn't that I thought I deserved it. Um, I just really wanted to save him. And I had bought into that mythology that that's women's job in our country. Um, And perhaps in every country is to put up with abuse because men are worth it. Um, and that we can help them. And it took me almost being killed before I realized that I was actually the last person on earth who could save him because intimacy is what triggers abuse. Um, The closer I got to him, the more I reminded him of his mother and his family growing up, and the more I triggered his rage. And it wasn't until I realized that, that I was able to leave him, to leave him actually in a very loving way, to just say, "I, I can't help you and you've got to go deal with this to yourself. And thank God I did, because I think he would have killed me otherwise. And so that's really where my journey began. Mm -hmm. And I'm still on that journey of understanding why. It's not so much why I choose abusive men, because I don't think it's conscious. It's a lot why I'm vulnerable to them. And I I miss the red flags at the beginning. Uh And also why they choose me. (laughs) They tend to choose. They're very good at choosing really big-hearted, understanding uh, women. So in some ways, it's a twisted compliment that they have chosen me. And it's my journey to figure out how to find really kind and loving and not quite so dangerous men to fall in love with. Yeah. And I I think you're right. I mean, I think that, I think that empaths are far more vulnerable to abusers. And I think part of it is because they do, they, they, we all buy into the mythology that we can heal them. They, they know their demons, they know their darkness. And I think they very much want us, uh, they don't want, they don't want that. Right. And they very much want us to be the ones to be able to, um, to heal them. They don't, they don't want to hurt us. Most of them don't. I think it's a spectrum that there's some on the extreme end who really they're sadists and they do want to hurt us and they feel empowered by taking down a strong woman. Uh Um, But you know, it's, it is baffling to some people from the outside. They, they say, but you know, why would a, an abuser go after a strong woman? It's because strong women make them feel safe and loved and they they have their own mythology that a strong woman is going to protect them. Yeah, absolutely. And so how do you, how are you working how, like what is the work to be done, right? If you're if you're a woman who's come from an abusive background, you know, how 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 do you how do you trust yourself again? You know, that is the biggest question. <laughs> yeah. So many people say to me, how long did it take you to trust men again? And that is not what this paradigm is about. Um, because of course I knew that, that most men were great and that most men are trustworthy, but that I needed to learn how to trust my own judgment again, or maybe for the first time. And I wish I could tell you that it was a very simple process and that I just, that the next man that I chose was perfect and I lived happily ever after, but that's not what happened. Yeah. Um, abusive people, unfortunately, come in a lot of different wrapping paper. Mm -hmm. And I have found that I am 
incredibly good at finding damaged men who I want to save. And it's a progress, not perfection journey that with each relationship, I've gotten smarter and wiser and better at picking men who are really kind and wonderful and want to treat me right. But I'm still on that path. And I, I think every woman's path is a little bit different. I have spoken to thousands of abuse victims over the years, and some of them never want to be in a relationship again, and that's perfectly fine. Some of them want to be in relationships only with women, and I applaud that. Some of them get really lucky and they find a great guy right after the abusive relationship has ended. And some women go on to being abused again. And so everybody's path is a little bit different. And I think the if you approach life with openness and if you try so hard to be kind to yourself, that those are the keys as far as I can understand it. And I'm not I'm not an expert in this area. I'm just one woman who is really candid about what I've gone through. Yeah. But that is what has served me well, is to try to be my own best friend here. And I love that, right? And I love that you that you really talk about this from 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 like a like a kind and nurturing place with yourself, right? And that and that there that it's not like I did this and now I that now I'm healed and perfect and and this panacea because I, I, I'm the same way, right? Like right. I I I feel like if I look at the trajectory of my history of with men, it just gets a little bit better each time, <laughs> you know, like. And I've had, you know, I'm, I'm recording today a podcast episode that will actually air before this one. So listeners can go back and find it on um, Trump bonds and talking about the fact that, you know, well after my divorce, five years after my divorce, um, I got into a relationship with someone that was so traumatizing and, and, and a different kind of abuse, like really, really different, um, and created a a massive trauma bond. And I had not, I I don't think I'd had a trauma bond with my husband because we, we didn't have the, it wasn't the, the extremes of the highs and lows. Like we didn't have the highs. It was always like lows. And then we sort of like get by, you know, (laughs) lows and we get by with this other guy it was like the highest of highs and the most extraordinary lows. And that, that was the, the abuse. And it was all around his wounding. It was all around his wounding and his childhood wounding and his complete avoidant attachment because of his childhood. Like, I mean, so much stuff that I could intellectually understand, but that victimized me nonetheless. Right. Exactly. And that, and I feel like, I think that that was more my bottom than my marriage was in terms of this, my sort of journey with this. But, um, you know, ever since then, sort of everything is a little bit, you know, one step better, one step better, one step better. And I feel like that's what it is for me. I often say I don't make the same mistake twice. Right. Which yeah. is great. I, I keep, I find new mistakes to make or they find me. Totally. Right. I do think that it's, I mean, I'm an optimist, so I do think that I am getting wiser or, you know, a friend of mine says, she's not getting wiser. She's just getting faster. Yes. That is true. I'm getting much better at recognizing red flags. I also think your story is, is really very common because I think sometimes what happens is when, when we end one relationship, we overcorrect in the next relationship. And I did very much the same thing. The first intense relationship that I had, and I write about this in The Naked Truth too, after my second divorce, was similar. It was a man who, it was such an intense bond that I had with him because I was dying for that. I was starving for it because I had been married for 20 years to somebody who didn't make me feel that way. Yep. And I think a key element here too is that, and this sounds like a little bit of a cliche, but I think it's worth pondering is that no one can look for somebody else to give them what you're lacking inside. And it's the same about your ex. You know, your ex was looking for you to heal him and you couldn't as much as you loved him. And I can't look for a man to heal me. I really can't. And it's, I think about it with my friends. Like I don't think of my friends as the people who are going to heal me or going to make me feel that I'm smart and beautiful and sexy. All those things that I look, think that men are going to make me feel all the time. Mm-hmm. And to think of men more is the way that I do my long-term successful intimate relationships with women and to use that as the model. Um, and it's, it, it's a huge, it's like, you know, 
taking a cruise ship and trying to change direction. I've been on this path a long time in my life and I'm trying to make these big corrections and it's not easy. And so I've got to be patient with myself. And I think that everybody should be. And I say that for men too. You know, men don't have it really any easier than we do in terms of these kind of issues. They might be in some ways more powerful or their body chemistry make them might help them be sort of less vulnerable to attachment, sexual and other kinds of attachments and other kinds of trauma bonds. Right. But men have their struggles too. What do you think their struggles are? <laughs> Just, I mean, I say that tongue in cheek, but like, honestly, I think that men um, have just as much trouble with intimacy as women do. Mm-hmm. And that there are a lot of men who have really destructive patterns with women that they, yeah. they go after women who are not kind to them, who make yes. them feel terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think men really struggle with making themselves vulnerable. So when they find a woman who is accepting of their vulnerability, they can become incredibly attached to her. Mm. Uh, in a way that's different than the way women do. I mean, women, one of the things that's funny about being a woman is that if you're having sex with just one person, you biologically become very attached to them. Mm-hmm. And it's one reason why I needed five lovers and maybe still do. Um, but men aren't like that. I mean, men, they yeah. have be having sex with one woman and not be vulnerable to her. Yes. But when they become emotionally attached, I think they become, they can become very, very bonded in a way that's really good in some ways, but also is very frightening to them in other ways. Yes. And I will say that that, I think that in and of itself was in my trauma bond situation, um, in that relationship was his, his, and this is exactly what you talk about in crazy love. And what we were just talking about is that actually that, that level of intimacy and that level of vulnerability was what had him then turn on me. Right. That's um, exactly right. Terrified of it. Right. Right. And he wanted to hurt you because you were a stand in for the people that hurt him originally. It's, 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 it's a viciously, that's why the book is called crazy love is that how crazy is that, that you were punished for loving him, but that's what happened. A hundred percent. And you know, what's even funnier is that our very first mix CD of songs that we made for each other, we made together, we called it, we titled it crazy love. Oh my goodness. No wonder you like the book. Yes. <laughs> I was like crazy love, huh? Really? <laughs> we all know what that means because we've all had a little bit of crazy love. Hopefully yeah. not too much of it, but men experience it just as much as women do. And I also, I feel like, you know, in the naked truth, the men who I dated that first year. Um, Each one of them, I really had to coax into dating me. And it was like a campaign. I had to work really hard because men, when they get hurt, they get really gun shy, not in a way that we should feel sorry for them because I think pity is a very misguided emotion overall. Um, But most of the men, and this is still true in my dating experiences now, they're so afraid to be vulnerable that it really... It, it really hurts them a lot. And I think that that's one reason why you sometimes see men in relationships with women who they don't aren't really crazy about because they, they don't want to be vulnerable or men in long-term relationships with women who are much younger because they, they want to be in control. They, they want to be out of range. They don't want a woman to be able to hurt them. And yeah. I think that that is terrible for them, but it's really frustrating for us too, because we want to be close, you know? Yes. And so we're yes. pursuing these men who don't want to be close, but we know they need it. It's just, it's all, it's complicated. Intimacy no, and this is really, this is actually really interesting because I found this to be true. And I, and I actually have had, like, I joke around that like four out of five of my ex-boyfriends gave me like, you know, five-star ratings. <laughs> of <course they> did. <laughs> there's, there's always the one, there's always the one who's like, not so much, but that, you know, because I, I'm a fucking great girlfriend. Right, right. Like I am, when I'm like with you, I am with you. I'm dedicated. Um, and when I love you, I love you fucking hard. And, you know, a lot of them have said, like, I wasn't, in the end, they're like, I just wasn't ready to hold that. Right. I, right. I want it so bad, you know, and of course, you know, it was different time, you know, wrote the wrong time or whatever it was, you know, or they just literally were like, you know, even the guy who, who I have the trauma bond with that, you know, he, he said, if I couldn't do it with you, I, I, I could certainly never do it with anyone. Right. You no, know, he's like, I've now shut down the idea that I can ever have an intimate ro- romantic relationship because if I couldn't, if I couldn't accept your love, then, you know, what's the point? But this, the idea of us coaxing them into it, because I have very mixed feelings about this. 
<laughs> like it makes me very angry that we should even have to, right? Like if I have right. to coax a man into letting me love him or into loving me, like, fuck you, <laughs> you know, because that actually makes me feel unsafe, right? I don't want right. to have to coax a man into this. Um, so say, say more about that. Cause I, cause I, cause I also think that you have a positive experience about that, right. And a positive perspective on this. Well, I would say that there are two roles that I never want to have again, that I have had with various relationships in my life. I do not want to be the police officer in the family ever again. And that's what I was as a mom eventually Yeah, right. Um, because my ex would not take any role in terms of discipline or anything. And I, I hated that. Yeah. But I also don't want to be the emotional heavy lifter. I don't want to be the one who is doing all the emotional work in a relationship. And it's just not fair. I, I want somebody who's, who is, I also, you know, this is what I have realized. I am terrible at picking men who are going to make me happy over time. Mm. And a man who's going to make me happy over time is somebody who can do a lot of emotional work on himself and on me and push me emotionally and psychologically and call me out on my own behaviors in a kind and gentle way. Yes. Um, I don't want to be anybody's mommy. I really don't. I did that with my kids and I loved it and they're grown up now and they don't need me to do that anymore. And I don't want to do it anymore. Yep. And I think that there's a, an endless number of men who expect and demand women to do everything for them emotionally, not yep. just the cooking and the cleaning and pleasing them sexually, but also to feel all their feelings for them. And I just, I'm not interested in that. I don't think that it's a, it's, it's not a mature relationship from yep. my standpoint. And it's a trap. It's a trap just as everything in crazy level of trap. It's another kind of trap. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. And, you know, I think, I think a, a huge red flag um, to sort of recognize that is when someone says, you know, like, I've never felt these feelings before, or like, you're the one, you're the, right. you're the key right. who unlocked right. my heart. Right. That's a sign that like, that you are going to be responsible because if this is, if this is uncharted territory, you don't want to be the one navigating this, you know, new <laughs> landscape with and for them because you will have to do the emotional lifting. Yes, you're exactly right. And it's very seductive to be told all those things, that you're so powerful, that you're so intense, that you're so beautiful, you're so sexual, that you're unlocking something magical for them. I mean, I'm very vulnerable to that too because- 100%. in that- is my biggest fantasy. Implicit is that I'm so wonderful that they're never going to leave me. Yep. And that, you know what? We all have our abandonment fears and that I want to be with somebody. I want to guarantee. And something that I'm trying to come to terms with is that in life and in love, there are no guarantees. Maybe I'm my only guarantee is my relationship with myself. And that's a big and hard lesson to learn. And I think some people learn that by the time they're 20, but not very many. And I feel oh, like God. I'm lucky to have learned it at all. Who learns that at 20? My God. You know, I know a few. I know a few of those people who are, they just, they're, they're, they've been operating at a different plane from a very early age. And they're the people who I think who find the right partner, you know, in their yes. 20s and are, are really happily, joyfully, exhilaratingly married for a long time. And they face, they might face other problems, but intimacy isn't one of them. They understand intimacy because I think they started out with a really good relationship with themselves because of the way they were raised. Yeah. That serves them very well. And I've had to backfill that. And it's a really expensive and time consuming thing to backfill. Isn't it's it though? <laughs> with a lot of therapy and- So much therapy. <laughs> 12 step work, talking to other women. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. Yep. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have friends who are, have amazing marriages and I always look at them like, okay, so what's the, what's the <laughs> ingredient here? And sometimes it's having been raised in like super healthy, happy right. environments uh, with parents who are still together and, and had really solid models for love. Um, and sometimes it was just sheer luck. I know it's true. Sometimes it is just sheer found luck. the person that was going to be complimentary to them at an early age. Right. And they were lucky enough to re and smart enough or evolved yeah. enough to recognize it and to hold on. And right. there's so many variables because then another thing that is key in a long-term relationship is the, the other person has to want to be there for keeps too. And it takes every single relationship, even the happiest of marriages 
have faced very big tests and trials. And to get through it, both people have to hang in there. And you do have to have some luck that um, the, 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 the troubles come at sort of the right time where you can both weather them. And it's, it's really tricky. And I think that um, it's worth it. A good marriage, a good long-term relationship is one of the holy grails of life. And I, I'm happy to keep looking for it. But I also think that it's wonderful to say, you know what, maybe I won't find that. And that's okay. Maybe I will always have five lovers who make me feel great. And I'll never have that one intimate relationship. And that's okay too. Because there is no there is no Prince Charming. And the myth of Prince Charming is really destructive to women, but it's also really unfair to men too. And yes. it's just, there's so many variables of crazy love, but this is all craziness, what our society does to us. And I have no idea why why this narrative serves our society well enough that it's so stubborn, but I'm happy to have thrown it off. I, amen. I mean, that's, uh, it's true. Uh, what does it serve? Like, what does this, you know, the Nicholas Sparks, the, you know, uh, fairy tale, Prince Charming, Knight and Shining Armor, all of that stuff. Because on the one hand, I mean, it serves the patriarchy, right? It serves the idea that men are the savior of women, but it, but I always I always say this about about patriarchy. It doesn't serve men any more than it serves women. I don't think it does either. And you know, men are the victim of other men all the time, and yep. and so it doesn't. And I I think that one thing that is wonderful about men becoming more in touch with their feelings and becoming empowered. Um, is that they're starting to realize the pitfalls of that too, that this is really bad for them. Um, you know, the obvious answer is that, you know, it sells a lot of Disney movies mm-hmm. um, and it sells a lot of like makeup products and cologne and things like that. And that there's some truth to that too. But I think there's something much deeper in our society that we've got to start grappling with is why does this narrative serve us as a society? Because truly it doesn't. And it costs us much more than it serves us. It really does. It really does. Leslie, I'm so happy to have had this conversation with you. Is there anything else, any other sort of nuggets of wisdom that you want to leave our listeners with? Hmm. The most important thing is hope. I write in Crazy Love that hope is always good. And I would say the same for The Naked Truth and my other work, that don't ever give up on hope and it's a priceless commodity and too much of it, you know, can be like too much chocolate mousse. You know, if you, if you're too hopeful, you'll get in trouble. But I would say, don't ever give up on yourself and don't ever give up on life. It's, it is a beautiful journey, even if it's in its really hard moments. And um, I, I love men and I'm proud to say that I'm a woman who really loves men, but the even more important thing for me is that I'd be nowhere without my friends. And that that is the, it's the only true romance of my life are the, mm. the long-term friendships that I've had. And I hope that what I've been able to achieve with those friendships is going to be a roadmap for trying, finding true intimacy with a long-term partner. Um, but I would say thank you to all the women who have helped me along the way, including you and including the woman who introduced us. Um, and that my journey is about empowering women, myself and other women. And I think that it will write a lot of the things that are off kilter in our society is to give women the dignity and respect and freedom that we all deserve. I love that. Thank you. I'm just going to leave it there because, because mic drop, because yes, I'm so with you on it. Thank you so much, Leslie. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to meet you in person. I know that's going to happen soon. I hope so. (laughs) I cannot wait to see you on Facebook and hear what you have to say there. I'm, I'm loving it so much. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Amazing. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.